everyone, I'm Liz and I'm a developer advocate at Evervault. Hey, I'm Shane, founder of Evervault. Shane, it's so good to be chatting with you on the show today. Uh, I'm really excited to just talk a little bit about our vision for the show and why we're doing it and kind of how it fits into our mission at Evervault. Likewise, yeah, the show's been a, a long time in the works, so excited to get it out the door. Yeah, so I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, but I would love to hear from you why you started Evervault. Yeah, I mean, I think the real answer is just frustration. Um, so my background is software engineering. I was building a bunch of tools and products that um, were handling all sorts of sensitive data. So everything from libraries keeping track of books to uh, labs keeping track of experiments and, uh, and inventory and so on. And this was sort of early 2010s when things like sending an SMS message had been abstracted for a developer where it was super easy. Things like charging a credit card were really easy as well and a couple of lines of code using services like Stripe. Um, but encryption was something that I've become very fond of because all these people were trusting me with their data and I had no idea how to keep it secure. And you know, at the time, I thought I was probably the only person that didn't know how to keep it secure. But having spoken with a bunch of other developers, uh, it seemed pretty obvious that nobody was really thinking about this. And if you wanted to use encryption, which uh, I think is the best tool for solving data breaches, you had to go spend months reading academic papers, um, spend a bunch of time learning how it works, learning how to implement it. And um, frankly, developers just don't have that sort of attention span. So um, Evervault really came about from the perspective of trying to take all that great work that was happening in academia, but making it super accessible for developers. So anybody who's building a piece of software can just integrate um, simple SDKs or APIs into their software, encrypt all the sensitive data that they have and still do stuff with it um, so that if they do get breached or all their data was published on a billboard, um, it wouldn't actually be a huge deal as opposed to a bunch of other security companies. And I think most of the cybersecurity industry in general, which are trying to prevent data breaches, um, we just took the stance that data breaches have already happened in your company or in your, like you just assume your software has already been breached and just focus on what would happen and how you would mitigate the risk of the data being breached. And encryption is probably the best way of doing that. Yeah, uh, I think a funny side note, uh, funny to me, is that you uh, were studying law for a bit, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was probably to be somewhat contrarian. Uh, definitely sort of computer science by background, but law was pretty interesting because it was just the polar opposite of computer science. And um, it just kind of threw people off guard a little bit. But um, I did enjoy it. I think... Uh, especially as it relates to, I mean, it's kind of like software for humans a little bit. Um, instead of kind of programming computers and creating all these rules, it was just sort of the equivalent, but managed by judges and courts and contracts and so on. So there's actually a surprising amount of overlap. But um, yeah, the people who study law and the people who study computer science tend to be polar opposites. Um, I'm obviously generalizing there, but um, I think for the most part, it's true. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when you decided then, you know, law was not going to be the way uh, you were going to focus more on on software and particularly on sort of like APIs for encryption and for security. Like, how did you decide what was important? How did you sort of outline what you wanted the focus um, of this to be? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'd read a bunch about 
different companies and how they kind of structured their mission and how they were going to, um, you know, align the company around building a particular product. Um, so for us, it was kind of two things. Um, I wanted to keep the mission really, really simple. So, um, you know, our mission is to encrypt the web. Three words uh, is pretty hard to forget. And it's sort of both actionable and easy to understand and also somewhat ambitious as well, which is, I think, generally quite hard to do in three words. So um, once that was kind of decided and, you know, it sort of created a direction for us to build software in. Um, the other thing that um, that I did, I think, before we'd even hired the first people in, on the team was to create what, uh, what we called the encryption manifesto, uh, which is basically a set of eight rules that um, at the time and even still today are kind of aspirational for our product. But it's kind of basically setting out eight points where in an ideal world, this is what software to solve encryption or solve privacy or security would look like. Um, and we can kind of then track ourselves over time as we build the product and you know, hopefully other companies if they're building products in the same space or um, you're building encryption tooling or whatever, can use this as a base for what good encryption looks like. Um, so there's a bunch of different themes that kind of run throughout the encryption manifesto, and you can take a look at it on our blog as well. Um, but the kind of core idea is having the best possible encryption, but also with a huge focus on developer experience and ease of integration, um, just being pragmatic about how the software can be integrated because companies don't have to encrypt their data. Um, and you know the only way Evervault will really work is if the barrier to entry and sort of the ease of integration is uh, smooth enough that you know it's you know all other things being equal, it's as easy to build an application with encrypted data as it is to build an application with plain text data. And the encryption manifesto sort of creates a, a roadmap to get there. Um, you know, I, I think we're not there yet, and um, I don't know if any companies that are, but um, it's a it's a really nice way to track ourselves. Yeah, I think. From what I've gathered, you know, from my time at Evervault and sort of like when I was starting to look more into the space is also that it's just like fairly nascent. Like it's something people have been thinking about for a long time, but actually having um, things in production that developers can use is kind of like a pretty new thing. Um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts since you have been thinking about this for a while, like how have you seen the mindset change or, or what things have you seen kind of like in the industry and in the market, um, that are sort of a dramatic shift toward focusing on this? Yeah. I mean, I think that the biggest thing that's different about encryption relative to a bunch of other spaces, like, you know, looking at AI and large language models and so on today is that encryption is just not glamorous at all, which means that people are naturally not drawn to it. You know, if you're 22 and coming straight out of college, like the last thing you generally would want to do is start working on encryption. Because um, in some ways you can think of security as like a tax on um, on creating new software and building new tooling. Like if you want to create new things, you just want to get the thing out the door and security can just sometimes slow you down. Um, but I think one of the main trends is just that developers are kind of increasingly responsible for the security of their own software. Um, historically, uh, in a company that was starting up, for example, they might have product engineers build the products, you know, sign their first hundred users or thousand users or whatever. And once they start having issues closing deals because of security, um, they'll hire somebody whose title is head of security. They'll buy a bunch of external software um, and then they'll sort of get a SOC 2 report or something that says they're secure. Um, but the best companies and um, the best security teams we've seen have sort of basically flipped that on its head and made software engineers responsible for the security of the code that they're um, writing and deploying. So um, that's a pretty exciting trend. Uh, and it makes complete sense. It's just up until now, the tooling hasn't really encrypt, hasn't really existed for encryption. Um, so that's really what we're trying to do. Like we're trying to take what is kind of like a foreign concept to most software engineers, but just distill it down to a really accessible API. Um, 
And you know, we think that by doing that, your average developer will start thinking about this more and more. And like that tailwind is already starting. But um, yeah, I think it's our job to make sure it happens quicker. And um, the easiest way to do that is by just focusing and obsessing over developer experience. Yeah, definitely. I think um, like some of those abstractions that you mentioned earlier were really focused around like how do we take this problem that's kind of annoying to do or solve um, and just make it really easy for developers. Um, And I think now because there are so many different libraries and tools and and just like everything that go into actually building something, uh, when something has like a really great developer experience, it stands out a lot, Um, especially if you're using a bunch of different other ones and you can very clearly see as a developer like, the experience for this is terrible and I really hate using it versus like the experience for this is really nice. And ideally, like for a lot of them, it's kind of set it and forget it, right? Like you just want to set it up and you want it to just work. But if in that process of setting it up, it's really seamless and beautiful, then you have such like a strong uh, association with that. And I think you're also, you know, from like the DevRel perspective, I think, um, a developer's much more likely to recommend that uh, to a friend or a colleague than um, when, you know, they talk to somebody who's trying to solve the same problem as them. Yeah, I think the, the great thing about building a tool for developers in general is just that software developers are really good at finding the shortest path to achieve something. So if they know they need to implement security or implement payments or whatever, um, they'll firstly figure out what the best way of doing it is, but you know, they'll always take the easiest path, which means that they kind of guide you in the direction of what a good developer experience looks like. Um, but it's just really important to focus on that from the early days because uh, security historically has just been um, honestly like very kind of marketing and messaging led and like the, the technologies themselves don't really get analyzed by software engineers. But when you've got somebody who really cares about the purity of the uh, you know, the infrastructure that they're putting in their stack um, in the form of you know a software engineer deciding what way they want to do their data encryption or, uh, or just secure their infrastructure in general, um, you can't get away with sort of big uh, marketing messages that you know, sound great in theory, but in practice don't actually make any sense. Um, so yeah, I think that's why building for developers just forces you to create the, the simplest and, and sharpest way to um, yeah, to communicate and, and integrate your product. Yeah, I know um, we've talked about this before uh, that it shouldn't just be building for regulation, right? Like we... There are those regulation measures that obviously need to be followed, but many times that's not enough. Yeah, I think one of the things that regulation has done is that it's made people think about it. Um, But the problem is that in some ways, especially when you think about things like GDPR or CCPA, uh, it just invites more questions than there were beforehand. You know, historically, a, a developer just had to think about how do I secure the data that I'm collecting on behalf of my customers? But now you have to think about the security of the data you're collecting on behalf of of your customers, both from a legal perspective and from a technical perspective. And you have to do everything from making sure that you have a cookie banner on your website to having a list of all the sub-processors in your privacy policies. So it basically means that more people are thrown into the mix when, you know, like our view is that privacy is fundamentally a technology problem. Um, we're like very supportive of all these regulations coming in just because, you know, frankly, the progress towards building more secure software or more privacy-preserving software just wouldn't happen in its, in its absence. But um, it doesn't mean that you actually solve all the problems just by spinning up really fancy and ornate privacy policies. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, all that's to say developers should be um, given tools that sort of abstract away all this legalese, you know, GDPR is 99 articles, which, you know, very few people have read, uh, maybe a handful of privacy lawyers. 
um, developers just want that distilled down into um, infrastructure that's mostly compliant with it. And you know, because of the because of how broad GDPR is, it's really hard to kind of solve everything in one tool. And you know, we certainly don't claim to to do that. And I think very few companies do. But um, you can make a meaningful um, you make meaningful headway to being compliant with all these regulations just by focusing on the actual security of the data because. Uh, compliance is sort of a secondary effect of having good security. Um, you know, it's not security that's a secondary effect of, of having compliance, at least in a well-run security team or um, security engineering team. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm curious, between, you know, when you started Evervol and today, what's something that surprised you? Uh, what's like something that when you started Evervol, you, you never would have thought it would be something that you'd have to like pay attention to or integrate into the product. Um, I think it's uh, the surprising thing is how long it takes for very, very early stage companies to factor in security into their product development processes. And you know, not to say that uh, you know, a two person startup has a very mature product development process in general, but um, it's interesting to see the change in your know, framing about how companies think about security from, you know, maybe a two or three person company that might only have a handful of customers through to uh, even a 20 or 30 person company that might have 100 customers or something like that. Um, there's a very, very sudden shift. And uh, there's actually a surprisingly large gulf between those two person startups and 20 person startups. The two person startups just want to get their first customers in the door and you know, they're happy to beg, borrow or steal to make sure that they get them using the product. And security is surprisingly just not something that they think about too much. And I'm sure if a customer asked them about it, they'd have a big story to tell. And you know, they talk about all the encryption at rest that they do and, and so on. But um, it's uh, it, it takes a surprisingly long time for companies to think about security in a kind of mature way. Um, not to say that it's only Fortune 500 companies or uh, you know growth stage venture back tech companies. It's uh, sort of yeah, around this point where companies have 50 to 100 customers. But um, my guess at the very start was that everybody cared about security and the only reason they didn't do anything about it is because the tooling was bad. But um, there is a pretty large cohort of early, very early stage companies that um, just don't st spend too much time on it, um, with the exception of sort of the, the top 1% who just know that they're, they're sort of optimistic and confident in their product's growth trajectory. And they know that if they're going to be growing, you know, doubling month over month or whatever, um, that security is going to become a problem in six months. So they might as well do it now versus in six months. But um, a lot of the time, not thinking about security from uh, from day one is sort of like a almost like a pessimistic loser's mindset where you're just not confident in your own product's growth trajectory, and you just think you'll never get there if you um, if if you do waste time on uh, or you know from your from their perspective, waste time on implementing security tooling. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really funny too because I think that um, there's there's kind of like an opposite end of the spectrum problem as well. Like my first job as a software engineer, I remember one of the tasks that they gave me was just going through and fixing all of these like SQL injection vulnerabilities. I was like 500, like it was so many um, because we had this code base that, uh, you know, had been written quite a while before and like people were maintaining it here and there, um, but it was like always getting passed off to different people. So it just like lacked consistency. And um, and then someone realized like, I don't know, somebody pen tested it and they were like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> we have to fix these like immediately. Um, so it's it's interesting because I think like it's, it's 
bad if you don't think about it from the beginning and then you have to do it later. And it's also bad if you are maintaining something that has like sort of all these flaws that you're not aware of. Um, and, and like there is something to be said for kind of doing it from the beginning if you can, because that's sort of like the easiest way to catch it and, and stop it from being an issue later down the line. Yeah, I think particularly as software matures, a lot of companies just don't even know what data they have. You know, they have databases everywhere. They just keep adding more and more tools on over the years. And like, you need a whole team that's responsible for even understanding what your architecture looks like. And um, that just gets really, really messy. Um, you know, there, there's a bunch of software and late stage companies that I think should just be burnt to the ground. But you know, it's just very hard to make a business case for it. Because uh, yeah, I think especially if you look at something like security, uh, unlike, say, sales tooling, where you can say you know, for every thousand dollars that we spend on this tooling we're going to get we're going to generate two thousand dollars in incremental revenue um you can make a very similar argument for security it's just way harder to quantify so um it's a very binary thing it's like either we do get breached or we don't get breached if we do get breached it's a huge deal and like our business is probably um you know ruined for for years to come um but there's a chance that we don't get breached and we don't get caught so um it becomes easier for these things to slip through the cracks just because they're not as uh, sort of yeah attributable as, as sales and marketing tooling for example yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, like I know we talked about uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about like why we're doing the show and, and what listeners can expect from it. But, um, you know, one of the questions that we talked about having guests answer is um, what's a really uh, difficult or interesting sort of incident that you've had to deal with? Um, so wondering if there's any of those that stick out for you, either that you've sort of dealt with firsthand or or helped uh you know a customer out with or just seen kind of out in the wild yeah i mean there's sort of varying degrees uh i would say from a personal perspective uh the first ever kind of software tool that i launched was um, a library management system um and sort of to your point about sql injections uh, it was the first time i'd ever used sql in in practice so um even just knowing to escape apostrophes and so on um that was definitely a lesson I learned further down the line once, um, you know, other people had to look at the source code and they were like, oh, you should probably fix this. So um, thankfully nothing bad came of that. But, um, you know, I guess somewhat masochistically, my favorite breach that I've kind of read about recently is uh, the Capital One breach, just because it's so simple. Um, you know, a publicly exposed S3 bucket containing PDFs of uh, everything from credit scores to mortgage applications for uh, millions of US citizens. Like, um, you know, people, people expect that all these data breaches are, these hugely complex attacks where you know, people are installing ransomware and malware and so on. Uh, sometimes people just accidentally leave things publicly accessible on the internet and somebody just has to guess the domain name or um, even just type into Google, you know, Capital One documents and these things come out. So um, that one's particularly scary just because of how simple it was and how easily avoidable it was. But um, yeah, without those checks in place and even just, you know, having good hygiene around what uh, what infrastructure you're exposing to the web. It's uh, just really, really hard for organizations of that size to prevent. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of empathy now for uh, S3 bucket uh, builders and maintainers uh, because I was working on something recently to upload encrypted encrypted files to S3. And I actually didn't realize sort of all the configuration bits that you have to get right for it to work properly. And like, when I was doing it, it's like for a demo, you know, so I was definitely uh, doing some workarounds, allowing any host to make a request, that type of thing. Um, but I was thinking as I was doing it, like it would be so easy 
to do what I did, right? Just be like, oh, I'm just going to do this to get it working and I'll go back later and fix it. Um, but, you know, everybody's busy. Everybody's got a million different things they need to do. And it's one of those things that's just so easy to forget to go back and fix or go back and reconfigure. Yeah, later never comes, you know, 99% of the time. Um, I think there's uh, there's some great things that AWS have been doing just on S3 bucket security in general, where I think effective a couple of months ago, um, they've sort of disabled public access by default on all new buckets that are created, but um, there's still millions or, or billions of existing S3 buckets that don't have any of that configuration. So um, yeah, it's it's not particularly difficult to just even go to Google or one of those tools and type in a company's name and figure out what they have publicly exposed in the internet. Um, it's yeah, it's quite surprising how much of it is just exposed. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit too about sort of like how we use AWS, how we're using Nitro Enclaves. I think um, one of the technologies that I'm the most excited about is confidential containers um, and, you know, running data in use securely. So um, would love to just kind of hear about what that journey was like for you of like deciding to take things in that direction. Yeah. Um, so the I guess the simple distillation of why encryption over the last like 20 years or, or even more hasn't really solved all the problems it should is that um, to actually do stuff with encrypted data, you have to decrypt it again, which means you're effectively back to square one. And like, sure, you can de-risk particular databases or particular S3 buckets or whatever that might store sensitive data. But fundamentally, the code that you're building to process the sensitive data still needs to have the key and it still needs to decrypt the sensitive data. Um, so I've always been fascinated about how you can solve this sort of data in use problem where um, if you think about it as a triangle where you've got uh, encryption in transit, encryption at rest, and encryption in use, um, those things are now possible with things like uh, confidential computing and, and secure enclaves specifically. Um, so as a like high-level overview of what secure enclaves are, um, they're effectively uh, isolated virtual machines uh, in, the, in the case of AWS, where AWS attests the integrity of the code that you're running inside them. So if you have a Docker image or some sort of application that you want to deploy inside um, a secure enclave, you can basically sign it, deploy it to the enclave. And then before you send it any sensitive data, you can prove that the code that's running inside it hasn't been tampered with and is the code that you signed. Um, so if you've got some open source tooling and other people can verify it and so on, it provides like very, very strong security guarantees. Um, but the challenge is it's just really, really difficult to re-architect applications to fit into secure enclaves. Um, so we were sort of a, a design partner for AWS Nitro Enclaves um, as they were being kind of rolled out into beta. Um, and we launched Cages as a result. Um, and what Cages is, is basically a really easy way to take uh, any existing Docker file that hasn't been designed to be deployed in a secure enclave. Um, you basically just build it using our CLI, deploy it to Evervault, and we just give you a domain name. So uh, we make it really easy to build, deploy, and scale secure enclaves powered by AWS Nitro Enclaves. And any data that you encrypt with any of the other Evervault tools is fully decryptable and, and processable uh, within one of these AWS Nitro enclaves. So um, it's technology that uh, I'm very excited about. Um, and I think it's it's only a matter of time before it gets adopted by everybody just because it makes complete sense. Um, you instantly out of the box get way way more sort of rigorous and um, just, just stronger security guarantees that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Um, so yeah, that's been our kind of journey in, in confidential competing in general. Yeah, we had this um, little like internal hackathon maybe like a month ago um, where uh, the developers from Evervault built different use cases with um, with cages and it was 
so awesome to see. Like I was actually so impressed uh, by just the different things that people came up with. Um, and I'm like wondering, is there any particular use case or application that you're especially excited about when it comes to this technology? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to lean too much into hype and, and buzz right now, but I think uh, when it comes to things like large language model training, um, NVIDIA have new chips that have uh, effectively secure enclaves built in. So if you want to train a model on a really sensitive data set, you can attest that it's that the data is only being decrypted by an NVIDIA GPU when it's kind of going through the training cycles. Um, you can then basically take that model, have it fully encrypted and deploy it inside a secure enclave to do all your inference. And you know, the secure enclaves on something like an NVIDIA GPU could very easily be connected to the secure enclave on an AWS Nitro enclave or one of the other chip technologies uh, with sort of like a fully attestable chain. Um, and what that means is basically uh, all these concerns that people have about um, you know, third-party providers for large language models like OpenAI building ChatGPT or whatever, where you just have to send all your sensitive data off to a third-party server. Um, it's only a matter of time before you can host these things internally, get guarantees that none of the data that you're sending to them is leaking anywhere. And it means that we'll see a bunch more exciting use cases beyond, you know, tell me more about the celebrity. It'll kind of move much more towards sensitive patient data, um, financial records, and uh, a bunch of other use cases that um, just large businesses uh, will just get huge value from. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, this show and why we're doing this. Um, I can speak to sort of like my side of it because, um, you know, I noticed uh, when I started working as an advocate here that there were um, different developers that were already in our community that were doing some really incredible work. And uh, I wanted to just ch kind of chat with them informally about what they were working on. And then in those conversations, I was like, well, actually, I think it would be cool if we recorded this because I think a lot of this is knowledge that is helpful for everyone. Um, and, you know, we recently open source cages. I think we're really moving toward that model of like wanting to share knowledge, wanting to share information. And this seemed like a really natural fit for kind of like sticking with that mindset of uh, just, you know, making knowledge open and accessible for, for anyone who might be looking for it. Um, but would also love to hear from you about sort of what your vision for the show is and what you're excited about. Yeah, I mean, I think for for the show in general, it's just a case of having conversations with people that are very forward thinking and uh, insecurity. And I think a lot of the conversations that I'll be having are with uh, basically security leaders that are forward thinking and actually doing interesting new stuff. I think one of the interesting things that's happened over the last maybe five or 10 years is that security um, leaders have just become much more technical. So instead of coming from a, maybe a compliance background, they tend to come much more from engineering backgrounds now. And as a result, they're sort of just approaching security through or from a very different perspective uh, when compared to security leaders of maybe 20 years ago. But um, a lot of them just aren't particularly outspoken. So, um, you know, a bunch of calls that we've had with um, and meetings that we've had with these people, like I've learned a bunch from and a lot of their kind of opinions and ideas have informed a lot of our product roadmap. So I think it's just really important that uh, we have these conversations so that people can hear what the best security leaders are doing. And, um, you know, if you're a two person startup or a 20 person startup, uh, being able to learn from some of the best security leaders on how you can improve your security. Um, I think that's just really, really important. And you know, hopefully someone else comes up with uh, a new synthesis of other great ideas just from listening to a couple of the episodes. Yeah, fully agree. Um, cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or, or talk about? 
Um, no, I mean, I think recently we've been very active about kind of new updates and uh, our product security on things like Twitter and, and Discord and so on. But um, yeah, uh, all the updates will be um, shared pretty openly on places like there. But um, yeah, really looking forward to rolling this show out and um, hopefully having it up and running for hundreds or thousands of episodes. Yeah, and um, hopefully uh, when we cut this together, we'll have a song from you, Shane, to include for the intro and the outro. Maybe, yeah. In I case anybody didn't know, yeah, Shane is also was an almost lawyer and is a is a side gig music producer from uh, when he's not running Evervault. Yeah, very mediocre, I must say. Um, I've I published a handful of pieces, but um, you know, every time I listen to them, I get more and more annoyed at how bad the music is. But you know, someday there'll be a good song in there. Awesome, cool. Well, thanks, Shane. It was uh, great chatting to you today. Likewise, thanks, Liz. Thanks so much for joining us on the first episode of the Decrypt podcast by Evervault. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you liked what you heard. See you next time. Decrypt.